Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 355, Wild Turkey Research Studies, Past and Future, with Will Goolsby. And I am your co-host, and the guy who doesn't know if he's coming or going. And I'm your co-host. And the guy who should be working for BP right now. Putting a few miles on the car? No. No, I I have rivaled their oil spill. (laughs) Is yours slightly more toxic than theirs? Yes. Uh, Well, I don't know, depending on the frame of reference there. But you'll hear later in today's show I reference this because we talked with Goolsby about it before. But I opened a cabinet earlier and a unopened, like, value-sized glass container of hot sauce fell out and shattered on the corner of my kitchen counter, which propelled hot sauce probably a good four feet in distance just across my entire kitchen, onto the refrigerator, pouring down the cabinets all over the countertops. Hot sauce, like the worst thing ever. 
and a piece of glass cut my hand, which then got doused in hot sauce. So that felt real nice. So mm. it was the great hot sauce spill of the Weddington household for the year. So, and also I'm colorblind and it's red. And so I thought I had it all cleaned up and Audrey got home and was like, what is all over the counter? And didn't exactly have it all cleaned up, apparently. <laughs> well, maybe some of that was intentional. Eh, no, I was trying to get rid of the evidence pretty hard. <laughs> uh, Man. But, yeah, so that's why I would make a good BP employee, because this was the great hot sauce spill. So, do you care to share what kind it was that you wasted? I don't even know. I think it was just Louisiana hot sauce, something like that. It was just the, Louisiana hot sauce. I mean, come on. The biggest glass container that you can buy of hot sauce, I'm pretty sure is what this was. It, it was an unbelievable amount of hot sauce. Hmm. So anyway, well, makes you question whether or not you're coming or going. Uh, so I'm going to say this first. As soon as hot sauce comes to my house from the grocery store, it gets bubble wrapped. So that's how much we, meaning really me, cherish hot sauce in this household. It was quite the surprise. I didn't even know it was up there because we just got groceries. So <laughs> I opened a cabinet and within the flash of an eye, unknowingly, suddenly I have a bleeding hand that's profusely burning and red substance everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So that was quite shocking when you don't know that's about to happen. Good times. Good or times. Or that you even own that hot sauce. So anyway. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yes. So... In my world right now, I have no idea if I'm coming or going. I am having, and listen, this is going to sound like I'm complaining, and I am not. But I am having one of the busiest weeks that I have had in my entire 20, how long have I been doing this now? 20, holy cow, almost 28 years. It's a good week. It will continue to be a good week, but it is extremely hectic. And so I am just like mid conversation with people. I'm just zoning out. So if you hear Cameron talking to me and you don't hear me say anything back to him for like five minutes during the intro or outro, you'll know exactly what's going on. Yeah, there you go. Is there something you could look forward to in about 200 some odd days? Well, in about 218 days, 11 hours, 36 minutes and 15 seconds, (laughs) I have a feeling that Turkey season will be opening in the great territory of Puerto Rico. I'm going to have to wait an additional week to crank things off up in Alaska. You know, we're a little bit different, you know, yeah. vertically on the map. So <laughs> it's, it's the amount of daylight. Yeah, that's what it is. So it's yeah. 226 days, 12 hours, and 13 minutes till we're opening in turkey season here. But it's coming quick. We're going to be in the 100s before you know it. You better believe it. I it's cannot wait to start hearing that. Good Lord willing, I'll be around to see it again. Yeah, I know. That's how, that's how I feel, especially with everything going on in the world right now. Yeah. Make you appreciate those spring mornings. Can't wait for it. So Absolutely. We have got an interview today that man, yeah. you said it last week, man. We are just crushing it. Not even us, the guests. Yeah. I will say we're getting good, good guests. And Without a doubt. The yeah. podcast we put out for, you know, I don't even know how many weeks now in a row have been excellent, and this one is no exception. We are with another doctor and biologist, but this 
week's episode is interesting because it is about a research study that just concluded in their findings and then two more research studies that are in the making right now. And those are going to be really interesting. Awesome to see, as you'll hear, that the two that are in the making are being funded in part by Turkeys for Tomorrow, this new organization that we've talked about on here multiple times. And we had Ron Jolly on to tell us about. They are helping fund these research projects that you're about to hear about so pretty awesome stuff no doubt i smell a favor of the week coming up here in just a little while oh yeah you you know where that's going to go towards the end but i'll say before we hop into this interview right now on my counter i found and didn't realize i still have my boudin from the real cajun market Mm -hmm. i'm gonna make fried boudin balls and dip them in some mississippi comeback sauce so i've got all the making sitting on the counter. So I don't want to sit here and talk to you very long because I got that <laughs> waiting well, on me. <laughs> let's jump into the interview with Will Goolsby. All right, let's hop in there and we'll see you guys on the other side. Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are glad to tell you that we have on the line with us this evening Dr. Will Goolsby, who is a professor of wildlife management at Auburn University School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences. So... Will's been there for a while, going on seven years, six and a half, seven years, something like that. And he's been doing quite a few research projects. And most of those are kind of management-oriented type of projects and providing information to state wildlife agencies, wildlife managers, hunters, landowners, and all that kind of fun stuff. He's been doing some work with wild turkeys recently and of course we've got another hunter on the line with us as well because will likes to chase turkeys and so his professional goal is to make sure that you guys listening to the show and especially me and cameron have turkeys to chase in the future so will sir thank you for joining us today Glad to be here. I appreciate you guys having me on. And I didn't realize we had that deal working where I was especially trying to provide turkeys for you and Cameron. Well, so that's news to me. (laughs) I may have just kind of thrown that in there, but I want you from now on every single day when you wake up and maybe you're feeling a little ill or, you know, throat's a little scratchy or something like that. You think you just push through it, power through it. I've got to do this. Cameron and Andy are counting on me. Yeah. All right. Will do. (laughs) And Andy's an Alabama fan, so you could just go with Cameron only because I'm a harmless Tennessee fan. We stand no chance. (laughs) Harmless, at least as of recent history. (laughs) Yes. And for the future history. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I'm really excited to hear about some studies y'all got going on. I know you sent us kind of a brief summary and. I've talked to Ron Jolly lately. I know he's been in contact with you, and he seems really excited as well. So should be some cool stuff. Yeah, Yeah, we've got some cool stuff coming up with Turkeys for Tomorrow as one of the primary funding agencies that I want to talk about a little bit. Whenever you guys want to, or we can go, you know, I was thinking we could go over some of the stuff that we're wrapping up right now first, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Let me know. Definitely. Yeah, well, Andy, do you want to get to know Dr. Goolsby as more of a hunter real quick before we dive into the research? I think it's only fitting that we do that. That'd be awesome. So, Will, I don't know if you've ever listened to the show or how often you listen to the show. 
but we do a little segment that's called the Rapid Fire Q&A. And I've got 30 questions that this is the part where I would normally tell our guest that the questions are about hard stuff like science, biology, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And I can even smoke that. Yeah, I can even play that, (laughs) pull that joke on you. So I'll say that I'll just tell the truth. The questions are about things related to turkeys and turkey hunting, really more or less your preferences about Uh certain things. And so what I want to do, if you're cool with it, we'll run through, ask these 30 questions. I'm going to put a timer up and time you as we run through these. And we want to see if you can beat the fastest time that has been registered. Arguably. Well, it's arguably only with Ron Jolly. <laughs> he claims it. Because Ron finished second behind a well, fast talking Primarily, <laughs> If it's primarily centered around turkey hunting, I'm not going to be able to hold up to Ron Jolly's standard for sure. Well, let's see what we can do with it. So the fastest time that we have is tony caggiano and that's with two minutes and 34.28 seconds now wow just to let you know jolly was 0.22 seconds behind caggiano okay so listen what's going to happen since you're doing some things for turkeys for tomorrow and ron's very involved with them no matter what your time is, you're going to beat Ron. <laughs> Understood. All right. So what, what I'm going to do then, I'm going to pull the timer up, and I will press start as soon as I hit the first question, and we'll run through these and see what we can do with it and see if you can beat the record. Good luck. Yeah, I mean, when you the questions, I thought you were joking. <laughs> oh, no. no, no. No, this is, this is serious stuff. All right. Okay. Wild turkey, grilled, baked, or fried? Fried. Wild turkey on the rocks, neat with cola or with water? With cola. Number of grand slams? Zero. (laughs) Have you ever killed a bearded hen? No. Have you ever killed a jake? Yes. A 10-minute successful hunt on a two-year-old or a four-hour long hunt with a clean miss on a four-year-old? Four-hour hunt. Favorite camo pattern? Bottomland. Wild turkey legs for dinner or for the dog? (laughs) Uh, If I'm being honest, the dog. More or less than five strikers in your turkey vest? Less, three. The state you killed your first turkey in? Georgia. The state you killed your last turkey in? South Carolina. Sit in a blind for four hours and squeeze the trigger or run and gun for one hour and not shoot? Run and gun. All right, so I'll just stop the timer because the next three questions, just tell me, since you don't have a, a Grand Slam yet, tell me kind of which of these you would rather hunt. So I'm going to give you some okay. either-or questions. Okay. All right. Rios or Osceolas? Osceolas. Osceolas or Easterns? Osceolas. Osceolas or Merriams? Mm, Merriams. Fields turkeys or woods turkeys? Woods. Shotgun scope, rifle sight, holographic sight or beads? Holographic. Rubber boots, leather boots or snake boots? Rubber. Your favorite place you've ever hunted? Georgia. The most turkeys you've ever killed in a season? Two. The least number of turkeys you've ever killed in a season? Zero. Out of all the states you've hunted, which state has the most uncooperative turkeys? Alabama. <laughs> if you only knew how to imitate one turkey sound to call turkeys, what would it be? Yelp. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good of a turkey caller do you think you are? Six. Your favorite turkey hunting book? Tenth Legion. Who taught you how to turkey hunt? Uh, one of my buddies in grad school. Think of the toughest turkey you've ever hunted. Did you ever kill him? I did not. 
Do you prefer long, sharp spurs or long, thick beards? Long, thick beards. The biggest mistake new turkey hunters make? Calling too much. How long does turkey season last in heaven and what is the bag limit? <laughs> Forever and infinite. All right. All right. We know the, we know the hunter <laughs> behind the, the biologist now. Yes, indeed. So Ron Jolly's time, again, was 2 minutes, 34.5 seconds, and your time was 2 minutes and 34.49 seconds. No way. <laughs> There's no way it was that fast. <laughs> no, but we're going to tell Jolly it was. <laughs> I had to I had to check up on the on the uh, turkey legs question because I didn't know if I was going to be honest or not. And then uh, Look, <laughs> there were a we, couple others too. We only want you to be honest, and <laughs> that is why Will Primos has the worst time out of everyone who's ever done this with us <laughs> because he didn't want to give one word answers he gave sentences and sometimes he would tell a couple of stories to kind of answer the question believe so, me it was hard not to yeah your time is two Legend. minutes and 53 seconds and that is a very respectable time yeah. so Good job. I would say that is in the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You're right there, middle of the pack, man. That's uh, that's pretty solid. Probably among people who've killed way more turkeys than I have, but I'll take what I can get. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you, you did good. You did really good. So we All enjoy right. that doing that. That's a lot of fun for us, and I appreciate you playing along with us. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. So we, we know the hunter now, and you mentioned y'all just concluded a study there in, in Auburn? Yeah, we're wrapping it up right now. This was a study that took place on a large private land or a large public land um, in Alabama, and um, we were primarily looking at the effects of large-scale application of prescribed fire on turkey nest success. Okay. Large-scale meaning large amount of acres being burned at once? Yeah. You know, on this study site, the average uh, contiguous burn unit was over about 5,000 acres. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so they're trying. Yeah, they're trying to get a lot of land burned in a in a short amount of time with relatively um, limited resources, considering how much they're burning. Oh uh, yes. Yeah. So, how did y'all conduct the study? Was it monitoring the hens? No, we actually didn't in this study. So, you know, we were primarily interested in the effect on nest success, and you know, there's several problems. You know, let me back up. So. Monitoring hens, putting transmitters on them, seeing when they nest, and determining nest success ultimately um, is a super valuable tool that we use frequently in wildlife research. Um, but it does have some drawbacks. You know, one is that it's very expensive. Um, another is that you know that we're area that the nest is in is dictated by the hen. So if you're trying to see you know how to nest fair in terms of predation risk over here versus over there, it's hard to get a stratified sample. And so for this particular study, we re relied on using artificial nests um, that were systematically distributed throughout the property in areas that had been burned, um, you know, one, two, and three years prior, we stratified by how recently they'd been burned. And then we could examine uh, whether or not those nests were depredated by predators. So that's pretty cool. So tell us about the nests that you guys built and mm -hmm. the eggs that you put in them. Yeah. 
So they look like, you know, a typical turkey nest that many of you have probably come across before. So you've just got somewhat of a slight depression in the ground. A lot of times will be adjacent to, you know, some, some type of woody cover. And then we place chicken eggs, unwashed chicken eggs in the nest bowl. That's, yeah, that's pretty cool. And so I, I'm sure these are not your chicken eggs from Publix. These are... No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we wanted we wanted them to be, you know, as close as possible to, you know, a raw, unfiltered egg, if you will. Yeah. 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 So we set those nests up and we like I said, we systematically distributed them, distributed them across these sites that varied in time since fire. And what we were really interested in, you know, one thing that's that's kinda interesting is a lot of people think about, especially turkey hunters, think about the direct effects of prescribed fire or even wildfire for that matter, on turkey populations, particularly burning up turkey nests. You know, we would Mm -hmm. consider that as a direct effect of fire. And that's been studied, and that's something certainly that we should we should keep in mind when managing for turkeys, but a lot of people don't talk about the indirect effects of prescribed fire on turkeys. And so, you know, those indirect effects can be positive. You know, we know that areas that are burned fairly regularly have good nesting and brood rearing habitat they can offer good foraging habitat for turkeys as well but burning is not always a panacea like there's certain burning practices that you can implement that could potentially negatively affect nest success yes so when did these burns take place what time of year so on this site about 60 percent of them occurred during the dormant season you know well before nesting uh, nesting would occur but there were in any given year somewhere around 20 to 40 percent that occurred during the early spring most of the time it was right before nesting would really peak on that site but sometimes it did overlap with nesting to an extent okay all right so i may be kind of skipping and jumping right into the results that you're going to get into in just a second, but yeah, did you guys notice a difference in the success between an area that had been burned dormant season versus growing season? We didn't really look at that aspect of it. We were okay. mostly just interested in how many years prior the area had been burned and if that was associated with nest success. Gotcha. Yeah, Very so cool. we had Grant Woods on last mm-hmm. week. He mentioned burning helps with snake predation. Is that was that any kind of indication found in the study that would back that up? Because he was talking about how burns would help with snakes predating nests because they're supposedly a very large predator of nests. Yeah, I never have really seen much data on that, and especially you know snake response to fire. I guess it would probably depend some on the habitat requirements of the snake species you're talking about, but. Um, one one aspect of predation that other than the vegetation effects, which I'll talk about in a little bit, that a lot of people don't talk about is um, there has been some studies that have shown that raccoons generally avoid upland burned areas. And so by burning, you could potentially decrease raccoon selection for those areas where hens are nesting. Did the data back that up? Well, <laughs> the data were interesting from this study. So first off, just kind of given an overview of the results, we saw an overall, so we had 230 nests out, and this was over 20, during 2019 and 2020 nesting seasons. And from those 230 nests, our overall each, predation rate. Each season no, had that was, 230? That was total. That was oh, total. Okay. So 100, 115 a year. So our overall predation rate was 25%. 
So 25% of nests got hit by a predator. And if you break that down, um, it was only 16% in 2019 and 35% in 2020. So it went up quite a bit. Hmm. And first of all, that's overall really low predation rate. Are you guys familiar with some of the literature on what a typical predation rate is on actual hen nests? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot higher. And I would, I mean, I was sitting here thinking, I assume because there's a hen putting out scent on mm-hmm. top of the nest. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So typical rates in studies of actual hen nest are usually about 60 to 80% of nests lost to predators. Whereas overall we saw 25% and that was 16% in 19 and 35% in 2020. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's part of the drawback of doing this artificial nest design is that you don't have that hen there that's producing odor that predators can cue on and you don't have that hen there that is providing a visual cue for predators as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But one of the advantages, like I mentioned earlier, I'm sorry, Cameron, do you have a question? I was going to say, but the, that, that's a huge increase from 19 to 20. Like, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's COVID. We the have same, a... <laughs> same variables and it increased that much. So the big thing that changed between 19 and 20 is in 19, we covered the nest with a piece of burlap that we had allowed to age outside and, you know, get as much scent out of it as possible, make it smell natural. And the reason that we did that is because, you know, actually there haven't been a whole lot of artificial turkey nest studies done. There's been a good bit of it done with some other species of birds, but not turkeys. But what they typically find is that in artificial nest studies, when you don't have a female incubating the nest is that you have an artificially high rate of avian predation, particularly by like crows and blue jays. Mm. So we thought that we could cover the the eggs um, to prevent some of that while the terrestrial predators would still, especially like, you know, any of your canids like foxes or coyotes, stuff like that. Raccoons have a pretty good sense of smell too. They pick up on the egg scent and still, you know, cue in, hone in on that nest. But our rate was so low in 19, um, we thought we had artificially deflated the predation rate by making them too concealed. And so we removed that aspect in 2020, and that's why it jumped up to probably probably why it jumped up to a more realistic number, which is 35%. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. What predator, I guess not specific, but type, like avian or mammalian, was the main culprit for these nests? Are you able to just... Like yep. figure that out. Yep, yep. That's a good question, and that was the other thing that I was going to mention is our, the artificial nest studies have the benefit that we can put them where we want to to look at you know the effect of different conditions on the nest, and then we also don't have to worry about disturbing the hen. And because of fears of of hen disturbance, and if you think about it, a lot of the turkey studies that are done, they're not done in an area because the turkey population is doing great there it's done because they're worried about the turkey population in that area and so if that's the case researchers are going to be you know way more hesitant about bumping hens so we're not going to go in and set up a camera over that nest to see which which species of predator is responsible but with artificial nests we don't have that concern so we monitored all these nests with cameras um and i've actually got some of the footage on my Instagram page, um, if anybody cares to check that out. But we had 10 of the ones that we were able to get good images of. Uh, we had 10 gray foxes, nine possums, seven coyotes, five raccoons, five crows, four pigs, and one skunk. And so one of the most interesting things about that that jumps out to me is that Grafe, I mean, you expect possums to be in the top, right? And you expect raccoons to be in the top. But um, gray fox was number one and coyote was number three. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting because everybody, I mean, war is on for the raccoons and possums, but you don't see near as yeah. much effort towards your fox and coyotes. Right. Yeah, and I mean that was when I when I made that post, that was one of the implications um, that I discussed on there is if you're primarily trapping to remove turkey nest predators on a site like ours using just you know cage traps or dog proof traps, you know you're missing the number one and the number three nest predator on our site. Now, you know that doesn't necessarily apply to all sites, but it certainly did on ours, and it certainly could on some others. Sure. It, what was number two? Possums. Possum ranked above the raccoon. That's interesting to me. It did. And yeah, these are and in burned areas, though. So, oh, right. and he is, said that might. Yeah. Uh, it, do you think that that is part of the reason why the mm-hmm. raccoon number was so low that they do tend to avoid those upland burned areas? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I also think that it had to do with the landscape of our study site um, because it does tend to be, you know, relatively hilly terrain and you don't have, you know, wide, you know, streamside management zones or hardwood mm-hmm. bottoms that you see that are typical in a lot of parts of the southeast. This this site was much more characteristic of like a southern Appalachian area. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that was part of it. There wasn't a lot of habitat in the bottomland areas. And then also a lot of the uplands were burned. So it wasn't as attractive to raccoons. But we're still really trying to tease some of these things out of the data because one of the things that we think also is an operation is that just in general, the site has a relatively low abundance of predators just because of, you know, its habitat conditions. Okay. So how many acres, you said the site, I mean, obviously had to be huge. And right did y'all place the nests like the burned area you said you know what would you say five thousand acres were there some in like the middle some on the edges some you know that was kind of the placement yeah they were and that's one of the things i wish i had the data to share um on that to share with you today but one of the things we're looking at is how distance to the edge of a burn unit affected nest success as well that's what i was curious of if if right more middle nested hens survive better or how you know if there would be any data to support that yeah i mean it makes sense that well well to me you know the major drawback that i think about when i think about large-scale burning is well first of all you know you're not going to implement burns on that scale when your primary management objective is to increase turkey abundance right yeah, smaller um, is better, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is a generalist species. You know, you think about what they require for brood rearing versus nesting habitat versus roosting habitat, you know, fall foraging areas versus spring foraging areas, you know, strutting areas, things like that. They require a diversity of cover types. And so you're going to want to generally minimize management practices that increase the coverage of any one cover type to this kind of scale. So. Going from 2019 to 2020, did Mm -hmm. you guys place your artificial nests in the same locations in 2020? They were were approximately the same. Okay. But they, you know, they wouldn't have, they would probably, my guess was probably within, you know, 50 yards of where they were the previous year. Sure. Okay. So are you wondering if there was some learning going on there? Well, no, not as much. I just wondered. If I I don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I wouldn't think that the predators would learn to come back and check the same exact tree. Right. 
from one year to the next looking for a turkey nest because I just don't, and maybe I'm wrong about this too, I just don't think that hen turkeys are going to nest in the exact same spot year after mm, year yeah. because that habitat's right. going to change. Right. So. Sure. Yeah, I was just curious. I think if any, yeah, I think the likelihood that any learning occurred on the predator's part is is probably low because you know these nests were only out there for two weeks at a time, and so mm-hmm. you know a raccoon or a coyote goes and gets a snack of a couple eggs. That area is probably not strongly flagged in in his or her mind that I right. need to come back to this spot next year. I got one meal out of it. Yeah, it's not like a persimmon tree that's right dropping persimmons every year. Or every other year, so yeah. Would it good be point. possible that this may be getting out on a limb? But could you take a domestic turkey and I don't know, I guess kill it and go put it on the nest <laughs> to simulate a hen on it? Or is there a way to simulate a hen being with the nest? Yeah, I can think of a lot of creative ways. I don't know if any of them would be approved by the university. <laughs> Peter wouldn't want you like strapping a, a tame turkey to the nest. <laughs> that would be something else. But yeah, I mean that's a good point though. I, I just it's interesting to think about how much of an added cue for predators having that hen present is. Yeah, because hasn't there been studies showing that hens that recessed from the nest more tend to be more successful like the ones that aren't sitting on it all day Uh, i'm not i'm not completely up to date on that but i was under the impression i I know what i know the study you're talking about i was under the impression that the opposite was true that the hens that recessed more had lower nest success and the thought was that may be true i I can't remember which way it was yeah and and one of the one of the hypotheses that they used to predict that was that um, to predict why that was the case or the cause for that is that um, hens that have to reso- recess more are typically in poor body condition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're sense. having to leave. Yeah, the ones that are in better body condition can incubate longer, whereas the ones that are in poor condition have to go out more often just more to stay alive. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I guess they're spreading more scent trails back towards the nest. Potentially drawing predators back to the nest. And, you know, if they're in worse body condition, it's probably likely their eggs aren't as high a quality to begin with so that's probably going to drive down nest success as well interesting well, that's a that's a pretty cool study I'll, I'll be interested i guess you said you're still interpreting data so there may be even right. further to come from this study yeah the i mentioned a couple of things that we still have left to look at and one of the others that i haven't mentioned yet is that we're also looking at selection for these different areas that were burned on a large scale in different portions of these areas, like you mentioned earlier, Cameron, like the edge of a burn unit versus more mm-hmm. in the interior of a large burn unit and seeing how gobblers and hens are using those areas. Mm. How are you monitoring that? So we had a series of trail cameras out through the site that we used to do that. Okay. Cause I had, I've always heard, you know, 5,000 acre burn, they're going to be only using the edges essentially. Yeah. Right. That's, I guess that's the hypothesis y'all are going in with. Yeah, that's what we believe. We believe that, and we believe that the the nest success was going to be, you know, greater closer to the edges of those burn units. We haven't seen that yet, but like I said, the analyses aren't complete. Mm-hmm. And we also believed that, you know, based on the stuff that's been published previously, that we were going to see kind of lower nest success in areas that had just been burned 
like one year prior, see it go up in areas burned two and three years prior because there's some data out there that show that nest success of real hens is greater in those areas. And then maybe see it start to fall off again once it got to, you know, four plus years post-burn. And so we actually have already have already looked at those data and and this this next point it really shows how when you look at results from studies that you have to make sure that you put them in the proper site specific context because on our site we saw very little difference in vegetation conditions across those areas burned one two three four and five plus years prior really? and the reason for that is that over most of the site you had over 90% canopy cover in the forest. And so, you know, we oftentimes talk about the benefits of prescribed fire and using it to manage turkey habitat. One of the things that I don't think is, is discussed quite often enough when that, when that, in that conversation is that, yes, fire is a very beneficial tool in shaping understory plant communities, but you have to have understory vegetation growing in the first place. And the way that you encourage that to happen is by getting sunlight on the ground. So by reducing canopy, that allows you to grow the vegetation, and then the fire allows you to shape it into the condition that you want. In this case, in the context of our discussion today, good brood rearing and nesting habitat for turkeys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, to, to say that, and, you know, it makes perfectly good sense to me, but I think about how the majority of the public ground in Alabama that I've hunted looks whether that's a WMA or a national forest. And so much of that ground is covered in trees with a heavy canopy. Mm -hmm. So really, are we doing a lot of good for the turkeys and burning that type of ground? Well, where it benefits turkeys most is where you do have at least somewhere around, you know, 30% sunlight hitting the ground. And, you know, the, like, you know, on state wildlife management areas, they have limited resources to manage that land. But there are some areas where they do conduct like some heavy thinnings and pine stands and then couple that with fire that creates some good nesting and brood rearing habitat. But to answer your question, you know, fire doesn't really, really provide much of a benefit in terms of shaping vegetation to benefit turkeys when you've got, you know, canopy cover in excess of 90%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got to have sunlight nothing's gonna grow right i mean other than that i mean you're basically just reducing the litter layer of leaves on the ground and that'll make it attractive to turkeys for foraging because you know they can get in there and access you know all those insects that are killed by the fire and that are exposed by the fire give give, like i said give turkeys easier access and as long as it's not too intense if that's in if that's in a hardwood area they can still you know roost in that area so yeah, it has some benefits, but you know, overall it's gonna be minimal when your canopy coverage is that high. Yeah. So you said ideal canopy coverage would be seventy percent or less? Yeah, I mean you wanna get at least like thirty percent sunlight on the ground and typically we don't really measure and I don't know how much you guys want to get to the habitat management side of things, but typically the way that we that we index sunlight availability is by actually talking about how many trees there are and so you know you're talking about trying to get down to a basal area which is measured in square feet per acre of um, like 70 square feet per acre or less and at that point that's when you're going to get that sunlight availability that's going to allow that vegetation needed for nesting and brooding to to occur yeah yeah that lines up perfectly with what grant said last week so that's right and, and yeah and to add to that there was 
a UGA study that, you know, Mike Chamberlain, I know you all had him on the podcast before, was involved in several years ago, and they found that, you know, it was just, a, I guess, just experiment of opportunity where a hurricane came through a site where they had some turkeys tagged, and they found after that hurricane came through and reduced the canopy in some areas that nest success was greater in those areas where the canopy had been reduced. And another study that he was involved in found that canopy cover averaged about 63% at failed nest sites compared to 48% at successful nest sites. That's not a huge difference in the canopy cover. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, what, 15%? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but, but can increase your nest success just by taking out, you know, Hey, why don't we get rid of these this grove of gum trees right here or something? <laughs> yeah, I like where your head's at because <laughs> that's a good one to get rid of. Yeah, no, I can't stand them, but that's that's really cool stuff. And I know you mentioned earlier you're now about to go on and venture with the Turkeys for Tomorrow, the new organization that has launched for the benefit of wild turkeys, and they're helping fund a that's couple right. of projects through Auburn. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we've got two projects coming up. They're co-funded by Turkeys for Tomorrow and the Alabama Wildlife Federation. And one of those is focused on trying to get trying to get some information on Jake and Tom fertility rates across the state, Man, uh, which funny. obviously has which obviously has implications for, you know, what birds are doing the breeding. And then we're also starting a statewide gobbling chronology project that I'm really excited about. That is, that first one really piques my interest because has there been any other study uh, on that topic? Not with wild birds that I'm aware of. Okay. So, I mean, that's going to be, I guess let's take them one study at a time. Which one would you prefer to talk yeah. about first? <laughs> Doesn't matter. It sounds like you're uh, excited about the fertility study, so let's go with that one. <laughs> I, I am. I don't know what Andy, which one he's excited about. Yeah. I'm just, I'm pumped that. You know, I've I've put a little bit of money into turkeys for tomorrow myself, and I'll get to see yeah. legit benefit right here. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, I appreciate your uh, your contribution to helping this research get uh, move forward. Yeah, I mean that that just feels awesome, and you know, can't wait for that. But so on the fertility one, mm-hmm. from what I, I've talked to Ron Jolly about it, some it sounds like y'all are going to want some hunter involvement there. Can you walk us through how this study will be done? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's going to take a lot of cooperation from hunters to make it successful. So basically what we're going to be doing is, and there's a lot of details to iron out yet, but we're going to be relying on hunters to provide samples from their birds of, you know, the reproductive organs of both Tom's and Jake's. I don't want to encourage people necessarily to go out and shoot Jake's, but we're going to have a hard time, you know, given how few are harvested compared to Tom's getting a really meaningful sample size because that's one of the biggest questions that we're interested in is whether, you know, Tom's are capable of breeding, or I'm sorry, Jake's are capable of breeding. And if so, you know, kind of getting an estimate of what proportion of Jake's can do so. And so I'm sure you're going to have questions. You want to get back to that, but I, I kind of circumvented your original question, which was how this is going to work. We're going to be working particularly with Alabama Wildlife Federation, who is partnered with a lot of private landowners, has connections to private landowners throughout the state, can identify some of those larger private properties for us that harvest a lot of birds. And we're going to try to get training materials and potentially even do in-person training with those cooperators to show them how to collect 
the testes are primarily what we're interested in from the birds and preserve those for us until one of my graduate students that's working on the project can come by and collect them. But in the meantime, those graduate students are going to be traveling around the state and probably hitting up some of the larger WMAs, especially during the first two weeks of the season when harvest is so high and trying to, you know, catch some hunters that have birds to collect samples from them as well. And then it looks like we're also going to be able to take advantage. I just had a conversation about this this morning, take advantage of some of the CWD sample collection sites across Alabama to get some, to oh, um, allow those as drop-off sites for hunters as well. That's, that's excellent. What well, That was an excellent idea because <laughs> they're already set up for it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it was, you know, I really appreciate the state offering that up. Although yeah. they did threaten me with having forcing my graduate students to come by and clean out the freezers at the end of the <laughs> sampling season. <laughs> oh, they're students. They need it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. But so will these only be Alabama turkeys that are studied? Well, our our primary, you know, priority is to do this using Alabama birds, but that's kind of a to be determined question because especially during this first year, we're going to start sampling in spring this next season. Um, we really have no idea what kind of sample size we're going to get. And so if it's underwhelming, you know, we might look to, you know, potential cooperators, partners outside of the state to, to bolster that sample size. But, you know, hopefully it'll be the case that we're overwhelmed with samples and we have more than we have time to process. So when that collection time comes, or actually, I guess, prior to that collection time, if you will reach yeah. out to me and Cameron and or maybe we have you back on and, and you can come on and say, hey, you know, here's a PDF or here's a website that can show you where you can take your turkey. Right. To, to, you know, for yeah. sample. How? Yeah. Then yeah. we'll be We're glad have to spread to... that word. I appreciate that. You know, we've been thinking about it. We're going to have to roll out a pretty big advertising campaign to get the kind of participation we want. And so, yeah, at a minimum, we're going to have maps of drop-off locations. And then, you know, we'll probably, like I said, we'll have some online materials that show, you know, walk you through this, the process of how to do it. I know a lot of guys kill birds in areas that don't have cell signals. So at those some of those drop-off points, we could probably we're thinking about putting some handouts as well that just have kind of a pictorial guide on how to do it. So um, in-person training is another option that we're looking at as well. It's just going to be, you know, how much time we have to do it and how many different locations around the state. But I would expect that information to start rolling out during this winter. Man, that's really exciting. And I implore Alabama turkey hunters to keep monitoring this study yeah. and how to get involved. Because well, you that's, can literally help save wild turkeys potentially. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that I've been really curious about is whether hunters are is, this is going to be something I can see it either way that they're going to be really enthusiastic about or you know I don't know if they'll be cautious about participating in this. It's it's kind of up in the air in my mind right now. What do you guys think? We'll see. Andy, you're you're one of those Alabama folks. What, uh, what, do, what do you think? I mean, you know, maybe maybe I'm just very much skewed by the people that I talk to that listen to this podcast. But the majority, the vast majority of people that listen to this show, they want to do anything and everything to try to help you guys with your studies. They want to do anything and everything to help our state biologists to mm -hmm. come up with better regulations to help preserve 
the population or, and even grow the population of wild turkeys. And so, right. yeah. you know, maybe I'm skewed by that and I'm not really thinking about John Doe who lives out in rural Alabama that really could give a rat's you know what about <laughs> wild turkeys, you know, and he's going out and killing 10 in a year. So, <laughs> you know, that kind of person, I don't think you're going to get the type of results from, but I believe the people that listen to this show and I'd be shocked if you don't get a good bit of participation. I guess the other side of me wonders, you know, if it's opened up to other states in the Southeast, would Cameron participate? Because then he wouldn't have as many turkey meatballs for the off season. <laughs> That's not what I make my meatballs out of, Andy. But... Oh, is it? oh, okay. Well, maybe <laughs> we'll, we'll talk I about I would participate, though. That is one part of the turkey I'd be willing <laughs> to give away. <laughs> you could roll them... Cameron, you could roll them in some of that hot sauce that you spilled earlier that we were talking about before we started recording. You know, I just looked down at my leg and I didn't even notice the inner half of my leg had hot sauce on it. But that story is irrelevant to this. But just just so everybody knows, I spilled the most massive thing of hot sauce you've ever seen right before this call. But <laughs> so, but what sample size, I guess, are you hoping for? Like, yeah. what would be a great turnout? You know, this number of jakes and this number of gobblers. I would really like to have at least a total sample size of somewhere around 400 to 500 birds. And, oh. you know, if if that's if that's 40 to 50, you know, if, if 40 to 50 jakes are in that, I'd, I'd be pretty enthusiastic. Hmm. I think I think Alabama can do that. I do. <laughs> well, heck, Kill they, a jake know, for the na- in the name of research. They only check in like a thousand turkeys down there, so. <laughs> yeah, getting a 40 or 50%, you know, participation rate on the study may be a stretch with those thousand yep. turkeys turned in. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. It, yeah. They're so good about checking their turkeys in Alabama. Yeah, no. Is that how many were game checked last year? Uh, it was something really low. I can't yeah. remember. It was like seven or 8,000. Is that right, Andy? I don't believe I ever saw the stats. I started to look one day and I got sidetracked doing something and never never took the time to look. But I know it's definitely not accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's uh last year it was fourteen thousand. Okay. I think that's probably around half, but that's better uh, than it has been. I think it's less than that. Less than half. But still, yeah, seriously, anything that we can do to help get the word out when you're, you know, I would say give us four or five weeks, six weeks, yeah, heads up on it, and we'll schedule a time to get you back on, even if it's just for 10, 15 minutes and say, hey, yeah, here's what we're looking for. Here's how you do it. Here's where you send them, you know, help us out. And Perfect. That'd be great. I yeah. appreciate it, guys. So turkeys for tomorrow is funding this in partnership with Alabama's wildlife, correct? Yeah, Alabama Wildlife Federation. Alabama Wildlife Federation. Okay. That's and right. So you've obviously, because I, I talk to Jolly every now and then, he's he's really pumped about both of these studies. But from mm-hmm. what I've garnered from him, it sounds like the, so y'all kind of have two objectives, I guess. He was, he said, you're trying to see, A, can Jake's produce, I guess, enough testosterone to reproduce? And then he said you also will take kind of an age scale of perceived two-year-old birds versus potentially older adult gobblers to see if there's a difference there. Yeah, well, 
I mean, definitely we want to look at the proportion of jakes, try to establish the proportion of jakes that are, you know, capable of fertilizing clutches. But yeah, even I've always heard they could. I mean, right. I've um, never seen a study backing that up. I'm just that's just what I've been told. Yeah, it's up in the air. I'm I'm really curious to see what these results show because it's strange to me as a turkey hunter that you know a, a Jake would even potentially you know risk the the antagonistic interaction with a Tom hmm. to go after a hen. You know because that that doesn't fit that's in. True. You know just from a fitness perspective. Why is he going to risk that? You know, you would think that that animal has evolved to know when he can and can't reproduce. So maybe it is, maybe it is a small proportion, but I would be surprised if there aren't some jakes that are capable of breeding. Yeah. I've seen some super jakes that look like they definitely thought they could breed. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder if a month or two months difference yeah, in age hat. makes a difference for them. And, you know, you would think that it would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things I wish we could get at, but I don't, you know, so many birds are killed early in the season. I don't know that we're going to be able to get much of a sample as the season goes on, but ideally I would like to see what, you know, those, what happens to fertility rates and those sperm counts specifically as we go from say early to mid to late season, especially for those younger birds. Because if you do, if you do have, you know, these older dominant birds suppressing testosterone, in younger birds and you kill that older bird and his testosterone responds, you know, you would expect to see that more of these younger birds have higher sperm counts and are thus more fertile as the season goes on. I think y'all are going to get a ton of very interesting data out of this, assuming Alabamians participate well. And right. I mean, there's so many things I didn't even think about the timing effect of their sperm counts throughout the months. And so that, that's going to be interesting. You know, a, a bird killed on the youth hunt in March compared to the last weekend of the season, if there's a big difference there, that would be very interesting. That That's another right. aspect I hadn't even considered. So that... Right, but I... And I didn't, I didn't finish fully answering your question. Yes, I mean, we're even going to see what the, what the variation or the range in fertility is for adult birds as well. Now, you know, the way that we're collecting these samples and... You know, given some of the recent data on banded birds, we know that it's it's becoming more and more dubious to try to separate two-year-olds from three-year-olds and older birds. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, one of the things we, we want to find, like I said, was is there a range in, in fertility rates even among these older birds? And if so, what proportion are capable or incapable of breeding? And then in addition to that, you know, we're going to try for some of the samples that, you know, we collect directly to get some behavioral, you know, some observational behavioral data from the hunters. So, you know, was this a single bird that came out and attacked a strutter decoy or, you know, was it a flock of toms and you shot the one that bred the hen while the others stood by and didn't even, weren't even fanning, you know, things like that that could get at some of potentially the the dominant status of some of the birds that are in the sample. Yeah. I would be very interested in that as well. I mean, I think there's so many avenues you're going to have with this type of study, and I have never heard of any studies that have explored this. So I, I'm really excited about the findings and, and hope a lot of folks will hop on this. And Super Pump Turkeys for Tomorrow is launching this as kind of their first couple studies they're getting behind this new organization. It's just awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it myself. Well, tell us about the other one. So y'all have that one coming up, and... Is this mm-hmm. the 
the gobbling one going to be the same years? You know, these are going to be concurrently happening at the same time? Yeah, they are. We're starting next spring, and we're continuing for three years with the gobbling study. Um, so to give a little bit of background, a lot of your listeners, I would assume, probably are familiar with the Hunting Public show. And, yep. you know, they had they did an interview with Dr. Mike Chamberlain at UGA. They got interested in doing some turkey research in Alabama, so they did a fundraiser to purchase some of these, what we refer to as autonomous recording units. For short, we refer to them as song meters. It's basically, you could think of it as a trail camera type device that you put out in the woods, and instead of you know taking photos of whatever walks in front of it, it records sound in the woods during a specified period of time that you can program on there. So they, they bought these song meters for Mike to be deployed on public lands in Alabama. And then he reached out to me and said, hey, look, we're going to try to get some idea of timing of gobbling and across the state of Alabama. Do you think this is something that we can roll into other projects? And so I was talking to Alabama Wildlife Federation and Turkeys for Tomorrow at that time about various studies that they'd be interested in partnering on. And as we started to talk about this thing, it just kind of grew and grew to the point now where we're going to have song meters starting next spring that are going to be deployed on three different WMAs representing North Central and South Alabama and even a greater number of private properties as well. So there's a couple of things about this study that I'm excited about, and that's one of them is that it's going to be on private land because private land is, you know, traditionally underrepresented in turkey studies. And the other is that we're going to take a snapshot and I'll I'll explain some of the data that we can get from this in a minute. But we're going to get a snapshot of what's going on at a much larger scale than a typical turkey research project is conducted at. So what's the goal, I guess, of this study between public and private, other than, I guess, seeing when gobbling starts peaks and valleys and peaks again, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's the most basic information that we're going to get from it, you know, winter birds gobbling in different parts of the state and that's going to have you know some obvious implications for season timing and how you know season timing affects hunters opportunity to hear gobbling which is of course is important from a hunter satisfaction perspective but one of the things that i'm interested in as well is seeing how gobbling activity is going to differ between you know what is typically higher pressure public land and much lower pressure private lands, which I think will be interesting in itself as well. Yeah, and I'll be interested in the north to south difference. And I want mm -hmm. you know if there was just tons of data that supported north and south had a big difference. I wonder if that could lead to you know right. north and south zone even in, in Alabama, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So interesting. How many song meters do y'all plan to deploy on the? So it sounds like there's kind of two parties to the study. The Mike Chamberlain side, they're doing public only. And then you and your team with Dirt Turkeys for Tomorrow are doing a private and public. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of looks that way, but I mean, all the data is going to go to the same place. It's going to be yeah. analyzed by one of my graduate students. But yeah, that's how you know, many. How many song meters do you think total will be put out through Alabama for next spring? So we're already up to, I think over 70 was my last count. I'm not going to be surprised if we get up to a hundred. Nice. And so, you know, probably, you know, I already mentioned those, those first two objectives that we're interested in, but probably the one that's most important and we stand to benefit from the most is that by having that number of, of these recording devices across such a variety of sites and at such a large scale across the state, 
is that we can use that data to estimate something that we call, we refer to as occupancy probability. And without getting too technical, you can just think of it as it's, it provides us an index of turkey abundance. It provides the index of how many birds are in a given area. And so yeah. we can use that data and this is where it you know, becomes much more relevant to hunters and managers, we can use that data to identify areas that have the most abundant populations. And more importantly, what's the hunting pressure like on those areas? How are they being managed? You know, what is the composition of pine, hardwood, amount of yeah. brooding habitat, roosting habitat? And so we can really use these data. Like I said, that's a unique aspect of the study. It's at such a broad scale on so many sites that we can start to characterize the attributes that are that are correlated with strong versus relatively weak populations. In public and private, so that will be interesting. And these things listen all daylight hours? Are they turned on by light? No, so we just program when they're going to be on. And usually, you know, it's like the the hour before legal sunrise to the hour after legal sunrise. Yeah. You know, when to capture that period when birds are gobbling on the roost and that period where they're gobbling frequently, you know, once they hit the ground before they get hinned up. Does it run all midday too, or is it just morning? It doesn't. Night? It just captures that morning period. You know, the reason for that is there's a data processing limitation. Yeah, um, a lot of downtime. You know, <laughs> well, it used to be that we were limited in how much of this we could do, and it only the opportunity to process this much data over this many sites has only recently been realized because we have software it's basically artificial intelligence now that mike and his lab have developed at uga that can go through the data and pull out the gobbles and then that way all a graduate student and or a research technician has to do is click those gobbles that it pulls out and verify that they are in fact gobbles instead of listening to you know thousands yeah. of hours of recording yeah is there a way to pick up gunshots oh that's a good question <laughs> i'm not sure about that i mean you're in alabama so most of those gobbles will probably be followed by a flurry of gunshots <laughs> <laughs> and if you hear three so, or four shots it's probably Andy. it's me <laughs> Yeah. So another another aspect of that study is that on one of these one of these private land sites that we're going to be working on with the song meters, we're going to be able to couple that data with actual data on nest timing and nest success because we're going to be putting GPS transmitters on, out on about 30 hens, uh, nice. probably this spring, could be next spring, um, but we're all that's going to allow us to correlate the gobbling activity with the nesting activity, which you know those two things are closely linked. Um, but more importantly, and one of the things I'm really enthusiastic about with this opportunity is that we plan to put those out on a property that, you know, we as biologists consider supreme turkey habitat. And one of the reasons I want to do that is because I want to see, you know, hopefully get a, get a good picture of what is possible in terms of nest success and poult recruitment. You know, typically in a lot of these these recent studies that Mike's done, we're seeing nest success rates of, you know, low 20% range. You know, is it possible on a well-managed property that has, you know, good timber management, good prescribed fire, you know, brood rearing cover, nesting cover, predator control, all those things combined, is it possible to get that number up to, you know, 50% consistently? I don't know, but that's what I hope to see. Yeah. That would Man, be in interesting to hear the results on. Yeah. Both, both studies are going to be like, I cannot wait. I mean, so these are both, you said, three years? 
the the gobbling and nesting combined that's going to be three years so we're starting you know spring 2022 and then we'll carry on into 2023 and 2024 and then fertility is going to be ending at the end of turkey season in 2023 so two seasons there so Mm -hmm. on the gobbling study do y'all still need participation from private landowners or, or have you got that all lined out we're working on that right now. Okay. I didn't know if uh, you needed to get some folks to hear it through the podcast that maybe they want to volunteer their land. I didn't know if that was an option still or if y'all are pretty confident you have that in the bag. Yeah, we'll see what we get. We have a pretty good landowner network through the Alabama Wildlife Federation. They're going to help us in that regard. But it's going to be the challenge with that is we want because it's so important to look at how these populations are doing relative to the hunting and management practices on the property. Mm-hmm. We're going to want to include relatively large properties so that we can ensure that these birds are living most of their lives in those conditions, right? Yeah. And then they also have to be close enough to the WMAs that we're also going to be working on to make it, you know, to where the graduate students can efficiently, you know, right. drive around between the sites and, and monitor those song meters. Yeah. Yeah. And is this something that's going to be going on primarily in the central part of the state? Statewide. So, you know, we've we've looked at going up as far as, you know, Jackson County or Colbert County or even, you know, all the way down to Baldwin County. We haven't finalized those sites yet, but like I said, we're trying to get a good snapshot of variation from north to south. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That is, that's going to be another interesting study and, and really appreciate guys like you that are going to be implementing these. So you and I guess Chamberlain and then y'all's graduates will be the ones doing the groundwork. Yeah. So Mike is definitely going to be on the graduate student, you know, it's going to be graduate students doing the work to, to answer your last question, master's level students. So the way this kind of works, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it in the research field, but, you know, we hire graduate research assistants. And so they take some coursework, but that's only about, you know, 30 hours over two, usually two and a half years, because their main focus is actually on, you know, actually, you know, participating in the scientific process. They help design the study. They help implement the study and collect the data. They analyze the data and they write a thesis based off of it. And typically, you know, those theses have you know, two or more publications that we're pushing out to peer-reviewed journals. Mm-hmm. So those are the those are the folks that really do the groundwork. You know, Mike and I are more of the, the coordinators just trying to get the funding to make it all happen and help the grad students figure their figure their projects out. Um, so he'll definitely be on their graduate research committees and then I'll be handling more of the day to day with the grad students on this project. Very cool. Yeah. Andy, you better Kill a couple gobblers and supply some samples for them next year. Well, that's my plan. <laughs> we'll see if Another I can do any good with that it. That may not want to give up the goods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm all over that. I mean, that's not a that's not an issue at all. I mean, I'm ripping a turkey apart from literally from toe to neck anyway. So you know, what's an extra? few cuts yeah i guess i'm gonna have to put one more thing in my turkey vest this year because if i don't collect samples from my birds then what kind of example am i setting yeah Yeah, you you probably should collect the sample from yours and 
<laughs> if having a couple Tennessee turkeys in there won't skew the data, I'll ship some down to you. <laughs> well, you know, like I said, we're going to this first spring trying to focus on Alabama because it's primarily – not not primarily an Alabama funded study because Turkeys for Tomorrow is national, but Alabama Wildlife Federation is a big part of it too. And so we're starting out with that approach. But you know, after year one, if it doesn't work out like we want it to, we may be screaming for samples from additional states. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, even if it's only Alabama and y'all have good turnout and you don't need other states, the data will be pertinent to everyone without a doubt. Oh yeah. That's absolutely one of those pieces of data that's broadly applicable. Yeah, to at least the eastern subspecies, I would think. That's right. Yeah, very so, cool. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate Turkeys for Tomorrow making great use of their funds to, to put some studies together to answer some questions we need to answer. And I cannot wait to hear the data on it. I can't believe I'm going to have to wait three years for the gobbling one, but at least we'll get the, the other one two years in the making will there be updates along the way or is it one of those things where you collect all the data and then it all gets analyzed at the very end i try you know my best with some of these projects to throw throw out little breadcrumbs you know here and there with you (laughs) know social media posts and things like that you know i can't i can't reveal everything until we've got it published but yeah i really like the chance to share some things every here and there before you know everything's wrapped up so i do my best to share what i can Cool. Yeah, and if anybody wants to follow you on Instagram, I'm looking at it. It's Dr. Underscore Will Underscore Goolsby, which is G-U-L-S-B-Y. So go follow him there, and you can see some data on it. looks like some deer and turkeys and habitat, and there's somebody with a turtle. <laughs> got all kind of stuff on here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you guys are excited about it. I It's it's hard for me to contain my excitement out even outside of these research projects. I just feel like, you know, with this turkeys for tomorrow group that they're just really building a lot of, you know, some grassroots momentum to get this stuff rolling. And, you know, Cameron, you said that you talk to Jolly pretty, pretty regularly. I do too. I mean, he's just him and that organization are really just, um, you know, a bunch of diehard Turkey hunters that are trying to help figure this out, partnering with whoever they can to just try to move things forward. Yeah. Uh, no doubt about it. Solid group of guys, and the proof's right here in what they're trying to do with these studies. They're putting the funds that they're getting to great use. They're trying to answer questions that potentially could help us in the future with our turkey populations. And I've never had a bad conversation with Jolly, although he does definitely blame Andy for losing in the rapid-fire Q&A. That, that's the only negative <laughs> thing I've ever heard the man say, but great organization. And he did lose. Because if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> I know he's going so to listen I'm sure he'll love that. I guess I'm last, too, then. I am, too. So yeah, don't, we, we don't feel are. bad about it, Will. I'm, I'm last bad. right there with you. <laughs> yeah. We all are. But, but, yeah, seriously, cool stuff, man. I, I appreciate you coming on here and, and telling us about this exciting venture y'all are going on. And we will definitely have to have you back on I guess throughout, just to ask how the project's going, and, and no doubt going to have you back on, Lord willing, when it's all over to hear what happened. Yeah, that all sounds good. I look forward to it, and I'll make sure to get in touch with you guys about any updates related to participating in a, either of these projects, but particularly in the fertility study. Absolutely. Yeah. We would love to help share that, and I hope our listeners who are in Alabama or no turkey hunters in Alabama will be waiting to hear from it to 
know how they can help because this is a very easy and cheap way for you to help wild turkeys, Alabamians. Yes, indeed. Will, thank you. We really appreciate you giving your time to us this evening and appreciate what you do for us in your profession and keep up the good work down there. You know, we may not be on the same wavelength regarding football, but we do have wild turkeys in common, so <laughs> work with it. So thank you. Yeah, I'll accept that. Yeah, and you're welcome. I, you know, I love doing this work, and I appreciate you guys giving me a chance to share and talk a little bit about it today. Glad to do it. We'd love to have you on any time. You just say the word, and we'll clear out some some room on the calendar for you. All right, we'll do. Thanks, right. Will. See ya. Have a great night. All right, thank you guys. All right, good night. Goodbye. Awesome stuff. He, what a cool dude, and, and yeah, just really well spoken, and sounds really excited about researching turkeys which i I love to hear that you know the per the people doing that are excited about their job you know (laughs) yeah well i was tickled at the end of the interview that he and i never had any harsh words to say to one another (laughs) and you know with us being fans and him an employee of rival schools big time rivals pretty I think we did a pretty decent job. Hey, the man's trying to promote turkeys in your state, so I, I'd give him the benefit of the doubt, even if he does, you know, sway towards Auburn. I have nothing but the utmost respect for the learning institution that is Auburn <laughs> University. It's their sports teams. Yeah. I prefer to not like. And it's not the individuals on those teams. It's just the teams. Yeah, it's a, it's a good rivalry to have. Sports yeah. are more fun when there's rivalry. Oh, yeah. And when you can, like, truly hate to the core, hate your next-door neighbor or your older brother or your nephew or your niece because they're fans of that rival university, but yet be there for them if they ever need you in case something goes wrong. <laughs> Or good if place. they ever need help, you know, it's it's a good thing. A good thing. So yeah. I hate well, them in a great way. Yeah. Well, for, for Auburn, excellent studies we've got coming out. Yeah. I am so excited for the Turkeys for Tomorrow kind of launching these projects. These will be their first couple to get involved in. And, I mean, this thing just got off the ground, what, like a couple months ago, and they're already helping fund two major projects that could answer questions for turkeys? Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, it's going to be amazing to see what these folks can do going forward. And that's how you and I can help and everyone listening to the show. And so, you know, just to kind of segue that into the favor of the week, of course, you knew we hinted around at the (laughs) intro, but you knew that was going to be the favor of the week. Make a donation to Turkeys for Tomorrow. If you guys were like me, and I'm not ashamed to say it, I'm not scared to say it, if you were a little hesitant to give money to the organization when they had a mission but didn't really know what their vision was. Mm -hmm. Then hopefully after hearing Will today, you can put that fear or concern aside and do something. Make a contribution to Turkeys for Tomorrow because that money is not going to pay big salaries. It's not going to pay for a fancy office. It's going to turkey research and turkey habitat improvement and things like that so going to help the wild turkey that's the whole goal there yep and And so just 
tell y'all a couple ways you can help. You go to turkeysfortomorrow.org and hit become a partner. And so you can contribute there and become a partner with Turkeys for Tomorrow. Contribute whatever you feel, you know, implicated to. I contributed an amount for each turkey I harvested this past spring. That just seemed like a cool idea to me. So that's how I did it. Another option, and this is a bigger deal than people think. If you go and have the Amazon app on your phone, get on that app and go to your settings and find Amazon Smile and turn that on and put Turkeys for Tomorrow as your charity. So on Amazon Smile, you turn that on and every purchase you make through Amazon, pretty much, you're going to get, I think it's 0.2 of a percent or something. It's a very small amount. will get donated to Turkeys for Tomorrow. So for instance, I've ordered 24 things on Amazon and it sent $6 to Turkeys for Tomorrow. But that's just free money to go to Turkeys for Tomorrow from Amazon. So highly suggest doing that. I mean, you think if we get 10,000 people doing that, it could turn into some serious money. Absolutely. And it's money you're going to spend anyway? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I bought, you know, some protein for my some after workout. Hot sauce. Yeah, the, the big glug of hot sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Six gallons of hot sauce. Some band-aids. Yeah. Some mops. Rags. Band-aids. <laughs> That's right, yeah. and that all generated income for Turkeys for Tomorrow <laughs> to distribute back to research out of Amazon's pocket. So do that on the app. You can also do it by going to smile.amazonsomething.com. I'm not as sure how to do it with the online version, but with the app, it's very easy. Once you turn it on, it stays on, and you're generating money for Turkeys for Tomorrow every time you buy something on Amazon. That's cool. See, I didn't even know that they were participating in Smile's program so that's yeah cool. i highly suggest doing that and support turkeys for tomorrow and we hope you enjoyed hearing about these awesome studies that auburn and alabama and turkeys for tomorrow are bringing to us yes indeed well fantastic what do you say we wrap it up and let you get into the boudin business i am ready wrap it on up thank you guys so much for tuning in this week we know that you have choices we appreciate you spending your time with us we hope you have a wonderful week and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.